welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm your host, Terry Finneman, guiding you through our own drafts of history. This episode is sponsored by the Department of Communications at the University of North Alabama in Florence, where experiential learning is valued and students are taught how to produce mass media content, communicate in professional environments, and conduct academic research. Weekly newspapers are the lifeblood for rural communities to receive information about what is happening in their area. In their heyday, there were 15,000 little newspapers across the country. Yet they are often overlooked when it comes to journalism history research. In today's episode, researcher Beth Garferick discusses her study of the partnership between community weekly newspapers and national newspaper syndication services in the first half of the 20th century. We delve into how newspaper syndicates became the silent partner of the country press, writing and influencing the opinion of thousands of rural newspaper readers who were unaware of the source of much of their news. Beth, welcome to the show. Why do you think it's important to study small community newspapers? Well, I found it interesting in that a lot of the general journalism history works pay very little attention to the small uh, community weekly newspapers. And and so I find that it, it really missed a big story or a big part of our history. And, and so I think there were, there's a lot of problem in what defining exactly what the community weekly newspaper is. And so in my studies, I've noted that weeklies could be a special topic uh, related to agriculture, uh, labor, those types of things. But there was little attention given just to those very small communities with 5,000 less people and their weekly newspaper that had local news. So I think we're missing a big part of our history by not looking a little closer and diving into those newspapers as there were um, at, at their heyday, uh, there were some 15,000 of those little newspapers throughout the country. Yeah, I think you make a really good point. I got my start working for weekly newspapers and I help uh, contribute to one right now. And I completely agree with you how important they are. Did you do any work for weekly papers? I did not. I worked at a small daily newspaper in Florence, Alabama, and um, I have noted or, or found that a lot of research or data collecting sometimes lumps those two categories together, small dailies and weeklies. So it was, um, even though we you know, uh, came out more days than the weekly, obviously, it was still a lot of the same makeup as far as newsroom and types of articles and, and the journalism that we were, that we were doing. So we're going to focus today a lot on syndication services. So how and when did the relationship between weekly newspapers and syndication services begin? Well, it, uh, the thing that fascinates me the most is um, innovation and uh, just just doing what's necessary to survive. And so this came during a period of war, the Civil War, actually, 
And and uh, so many of the printers uh, at that time they were printer publishers or printer postmasters, and so many of them were were uh, called to war, and so that left a real uh, personnel shortage there in their newsrooms. And so um, there, uh, Ansel Kellogg in Baraboo, Wisconsin, uh, established this kind of a syndication. Um, program in 1865. He'd begun this in 1861. And what he did is he worked with the Madison, Wisconsin State Journal, and he ordered half-sheet supplements containing war news from that larger uh, newspaper, and he would insert that in his weekly newspaper. And so it helped him, you know, to fill up his paper. And so eventually he saw that uh, there were some opportunities there of these what they call ready printed pages. And so he's and several others took notice and started doing the same. But eventually he kind of bought some of those smaller companies out. And so um, by in, into the 1870s, he became uh, well established in starting that service. So talk a little bit more about what else these syndication services offered and why they were so important to weeklies. Weeklies, um, at that time, many of them in these very small communities were only four pages. And so um, obviously it cost money for the printing press, for the typesetters, for the paper, for the ink, all of those types of things. And for many of them... um, and it was hard to generate enough local advertising revenue uh, to keep a lot of those operations going. So they found with these syndication services, uh, what they what they would do is basically they would uh, pre-print half of the newspaper. So they provided the the paper, the ink, the typesetting, the articles. So uh, and then they would uh, ship these many by rail uh, to these communities. And they would pick up these pre-printed sheets, and all they had to do was go in and put their local news on the other sides. And so um, it, it just saved so much cost for them. And, of course, for the syndication services, if I'm um, a big retailer and I could get my advertisements you know, in these pre-printed pages sent out all over the country, mostly the Midwest, they were the biggest Um, the customer base for these ready print pages. A lot of small newspapers in that part of the country. You note that one of the most influential syndicates was the Western Newspaper Union. Tell us more about them. Well, they were actually, um, they started in Des Moines, Iowa in 1880. So a little bit behind the, the Kellogg Um, syndication service going at that time. Uh, But they had the widest geographic spread. And and they, George Jocelyn, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, uh, he was a successful patent medicine salesman. And he moved into the ready print business then um, in 1890. And by that time, um, the Western Newspaper Union was uh, starting to expand, or WNU, as many referred to it. Um, it worked with franchise agreements with other subscriber newspapers. Um, and so 
it, the syndicate provided newsprint, half the editorial, typesetting, printing costs. Um, they could afford to provide this newsprint and production because the revenue generated from the national advertising, and Jocelyn was quite the salesman. Um, they were very aggressive in their ta- expansion tactics, and they purchased uh, Kellogg's Chicago-based company, uh, which was the, the first big syndication company in 1906. And um, I had some data showing by the early 1900s, uh, nearly 12,000 newspapers in the United States, roughly 9,000 of those were community weeklies uh, in towns with populations of 10,000 or less. And WNU subscribers um, had a total newspaper circulation at that time of num- nearly 25 million. So, um, Large majority of the customers, as I said, were in the Midwest region of the country. And there were so many small newspapers. And a lot of these communities even had several uh, newspapers at that time. It was was a fascinating time where um, uh, newspapers were were just all over the place. And so these were ready customers to stay in business. Um, That's a part to me of a lot of the untold story about journalism. It's really a business story as well. And um, a lot of this information could just as easily go in, in business journals. It's amazing how innovative these these individuals were to keep their keep their newspapers operating. You write that in the early 1900s, many smaller communities lacked a public library, and their residents could not afford lavish book collections. So often, the community newspaper, a few agricultural journals, and the Bible were the few types of reading material found in a rural home. What did this mean for the influence of syndicated material in local papers? It uh, it fascinated me to to learn that many of these newspapers they weren't throwaways. They they stayed in the living rooms and and the libraries of uh, these uh, rural homes um, because they they were such good reading material. And so um, uh, many of the homemakers would clip articles or save an entire. Um, issues because it was full of helpful tips. There were uh, homemaking tips, sewing, um, agriculture news. They, they divided kind of men's news and, and women's news. Um, there were news of celebrities, news uh, about uh, goings-on in the world and uh, other parts of the country. Now, a lot of these rural subscribers did also subscribe to their maybe their largest daily newspaper um, within their state, but those um, they might drive into town and pick those papers up on occasion. Um, There was a lot of rural uh, postal delivery for these papers, and it just kept them informed. There, There were... The, the biggest hits were, um, interestingly, they started a lot of literary series uh, in these newspapers. And it was like later on with the, with the radio soap operas and then, of course, television to keep, keep the readers interested. And so they would run series of these. Uh, it could be romance, mystery, westerns, uh, a whole variety of types of serials. And they would run chapters with each week. And they were um, very clever in, in keeping the reader interested in wanting more. And so they would purposely, you know, not quite in the series near resubscription time. So people would have to renew so they could keep the story going. They would start new serials just before the ends of others so that 
uh, readers would get started in a new one and have to keep purchasing the newspaper. So it was a fascinating way to keep them going there. Um, a lot of uh, the Sunday school lessons, they did recognize that their biggest readership was a Protestant community throughout the country. And so there were a lot of, of Bible lessons. It, uh, a popular column was called Sunday School Lessons. So a lot of uh, supplementary reading to the Bible, Bible studies and whatnot. Um, fashion news, a lot of the women in, enjoyed the fashion updates and, and you know, trying to mimic some of those uh, designs from the starlets and so forth. So it was, it was just fascinating um, interest and information for them from all variety of topics. In your study, you mentioned all home print editors. What did this mean? There started to be um, a resistance. Um, there was a lot of criticism within the larger journalism circles that kind of looked down upon these ready print papers as not being real journalism, as as uh, relying too heavily on material that came from elsewhere. Um, a lot of criticism also in that these articles were not, many of them were not, uh, the author's name was never given. Um, editorials, um, a lot of the, the readers just assumed that maybe that was local content and it wasn't. So there were, were, was criticism from this growing number of all-home print editors who said, um, we, we support the idea of strong lo- local editorials, uh, local news throughout um, and, and so th- there was some concern about quality of the paper content-wise. And so some of them, you know, bought, uh, bought into this idea that we, and bragged about it in their own in-house advertising, claiming to be all home print. But um, what I found interesting was the syndicates then worked with their clients in helping them kind of disguise their newspapers to look more all home print and that they move more to the stereotype plates instead of pre-printed entire sheets, they would have columns and different articles that they could use as plate matter and they could uh, place them throughout their pages and look as if they were part of the local content as well. But um, in all fairness to uh, all home print versus uh, the, the syndication uh, services, some of these newspapers, or many of them, could not have survived uh, totally on local generated news and staff and personnel and so forth. They had to have the financial and content support of the syndication services to even st- stay in production. You mentioned William Allen White a few times in your piece. Of course, my journalism school is the University of Kansas, uh, and it's named after him. Tell us a little bit about him and his importance to community journalism. He he is the one he be, he became um, kind of the icon or the symbol of small town uh, newspapers, and so and Kansas, of course, being there in the Midwest as well, Iowa, many of those states, there were so many small town newspapers. But um, he kind of led the fight to promote this all-home print idea. Um, His editorials uh, took a lot of national notice. Uh, He 
was an excellent writer, well-crafted editorials on state and national issues. And in, in 1895, he was only 27 years old. He purchased the Emporia, Kansas Gazette, and it was totally devoted to locally generated news. And interestingly, that strategy paid off for him because unlike so many other small uh, weekly newspapers, his subscriptions started to come in from all other parts of the country and eventually parts of the world because he became so well-known for his well-crafted editorials. So he didn't have to worry like so many others about where the next dollar is coming from. And he also did, um, he was um, a freelancer for some prestigious uh, national magazines as well and became presidential advisor. He just became quite renowned. So he was um, at one point, you know, he was an excellent representative of promoting the idea of small town journalism, but his own personal life went well beyond those borders. So he wasn't the typical small town editor in that sense. You note that the federal government stepped in by 1913 over concerns about syndicates being used for propaganda purposes. What's the story behind that? Well, there were there were some articles again in some of the national magazines, uh, kind of pointing the finger at the syndication services and the propaganda uh, that were uh, where they are saying that a lot of politicians started to recognize the potential to work out some deals and lobby and work with these syndication services to get a lot of their content. Uh, just you know one. Uh, just one transaction there with uh, the WNU or or whoever the syndication service was, and their material is all of a sudden out in you know ten thousand, fifteen thousand newspapers or whatnot. So they could see the power um, in doing that. The concern on the part of the government was that it it was um, underhanded or misleading to a lot of these readers. And they might view these as endorsements of these politicians, where in fact it was paid syndication news coming out of Chicago, Illinois, or where or wherever. So um, they wanted, uh, they were concerned about this idea of looking at the less un, less sophisticated readers out there in these rural communities not understanding um, the 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 source of a lot of the information they were receiving with um, editorials and political endorsements and so forth. So it it did derive out of that later that um, syndicates were required to then have some um, markings to show that it was syndicate material. It, it was still very small, and you, you'll find in in a lot of these newspapers, tiny, tiny letters at the very end, it might see, say WNU. So, you know, they were still abiding by a lot of the new mandates that came out of these hearings. But um, the lobbyists, uh, I mean, they had a good system going here and they were, were not wanting to give it up very easily. So it's really ironic that there's this investigation of propaganda, but then you note that the federal government went and used weeklies for propaganda distribution during the war years. <laughs> So uh, how did they do this and what kind of material was produced? I I think in their minds, it was, uh, well, it's for good intents and purposes, you know. And so in it, it, I actually, it was interesting, just the use of the word propaganda. And, and I, I saw so much where there was 
it was kind of categorized as good propaganda or bad propaganda. And so the government during these times viewed propaganda in a very positive way in that, you know, these newspapers are helping us to promote the war effort. And it was very interesting to see um, both in uh, the Great War, World War I, and then World War II, um, when there when there were efforts, uh, not drafts, but efforts to encourage enlistments uh, for soldiers, that most of the soldiers or so many of them came from these very communities, these small rural Midwest communities. And so uh, the government found it um, very successful on their part to run a, a lot of uh, enlistment campaigns, to talk about war effort, and then, of course, to get all of those back home to support the war effort uh, through rations and um, garden victory gardens and all those types of things. So there were a lot of articles on how to help uh, the homemakers survive during these tough times with, you know, um, food shortages. And, of course, by World War II, then many women were going into the factories and working. And so um, there were a lot of these syndication articles um, about home canning, uh, ways to prepare quick meals, uh, nutritious meals for your family, farming. There were a lot of articles on helping helping those family members who weren't off to war, staying behind. So um, they viewed it as a way to bolster uh, the war efforts to keep um, to keep everybody in in support of and so yeah the the government used these newspapers for their own purposes and were, were very successful in doing that. Overall, what would you say is the legacy of the relationship between weeklies and newspaper syndicates? Well, I I would say that. Rural, the rural weeklies had a longstanding practice of using outside material um, anyway, from, as we mentioned, from the federal government, uh, from advertisers, special interest, lobbying. Uh, small newspapers were constantly hit up for what they termed free publicity. And so um, they realized the syndicates offered them a means uh, to instead of just free publicity there, that they could work out these agreements with syndicates to provide, as I said, a lot of support as in uh, as in personnel because they were providing articles already written. They were providing the ink and the printing and all those types of things. So I think they found it as kind of a salvation to keep their newspapers going as opposed to always being hit up for this free publicity, because as I said, bottom line, they were businesses, newspapers, and uh, in these small towns, they were family-owned businesses. It wasn't until on into the 20s where we started to get more of the consolidation, uh, chain ownership, and a lot of these smaller family-owned papers started to be bought up uh, by um, by these chains. So it was a survival tactic that they used um, just to stay afloat and to keep a newspaper in their small community. So I, I've i come to appreciate and respect the role of the syndicates in, in keeping journalism alive throughout some very tough decades. And our final question of the show, why does journalism history matter? Well, because it's our history. It It's amazing to me 
um, how much of our history is told in in newspapers. And of course, my studies have focused mainly on small community papers, but it's amazing how um, how well you can come to know a community by reading its its small um, newspapers. You hear uh, birth, marriages, death announcements, comings and goings of the social elite. Um, the slow, the accomplishments of local students, the gatherings, community clubs, business professional organizations, church groups, uh, letters from soldiers, uh, letters home during the wars. All of these stories are intimately told in, in these newspapers. And so one thing I find uh, quite fascinating is that um, for there are some historians, I think you can't, can't truly know or interpret the history of our country without an understanding of how the syndication services worked in our newspapers. For those historians who rely heavily on um, newspaper articles to tell their histories, uh, many of them are unaware that in uh, a lot of these smaller town newspapers, the content is not coming from uh, you know the the mayor's office, it's coming from Chicago, Illinois, or New York, or you know other faraway places. So I think that is an important um, fact that's kind of missed on some who are who are interpreting uh, newspaper articles from from days past. Thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. An additional thanks to our sponsor, the Department of Communications at the University of North Alabama in Florence and to Taylor and Francis, the publisher of our academic journal, Journalism History. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Finneman, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck.